Good morning. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning, so if you have your Bibles, please turn there. Uh, But as you're turning, I want to ask you a question. If you were offered a billion dollars, I'm not offering you a billion dollars, this is purely hypothetical. Um, If you were offered a billion dollars to, by next week, by Sunday next week, get to the state of Kentucky, how many of y'all would figure out a way to get to the state of Kentucky? Would you, would you do anything you could? If you, if you have a car, you drive up there. If you don't have a car, you offer someone a million dollars for a ride to Kentucky. If no one takes that offer, you walk to Kentucky. But you, you would do whatever it takes, probably, to try as hard as you possibly could to get to Kentucky. I, I would think so. That's what I would do. Um, okay, let me ask you this. If you were offered a billion dollars to, in one week, learn how to solve a Rubik's Cube, how many of y'all would purchase a Rubik's Cube and start working on it? Um, I bet most people would. And I bet you can, you can find a way. <laughs> so some of you may be frustrated at the end of the week that you never got the thing. But, but there, you can get on YouTube. You can look up uh, uh, how to solve. Uh, they'll take you through this, a number of algorithms you memorize. And boom, you can get yourself a Rubik's Cube solved. And you can get yourself a billion dollars. Um, for things like that, if the reward is big enough, I bet you can find a way to do what it takes to try to get it solved. Uh, and I bet most of you could, but you can get, it, you can get that accomplished. Um, what if now someone offered you a billion dollars to, by the end of the week, set foot on the moon? What would you do? I guess I'd give NASA a call and ask if they wanted to do me a favor, but uh, I doubt they would. Um, I could go to my toolbox and look at, like, my hammer and think, what can I build? Uh, But probably I'm not getting that billion dollars, right? Uh, No matter what I try to do, that's beyond my ability to to accomplish, no matter how badly I wanted to. I imagine you were offered a billion dollars to raise somebody back to life from the dead. How many of you would give it your best shot? Um... You might, but there are some things that no matter how badly you want to do it or how much time and effort you put into do it, you are incapable of doing it wholly and entirely. You're, you could do nothing to, to accomplish that. Um, there are some things that when you view them as small, like getting into Kentucky or solving a Rubik's Cube, perhaps that's something you can do on your own. But there are some things that are so grand and vast and huge that no matter how hard you work, you'll never be able to accomplish them. When it comes to our salvation and our walk with God, I think we have a tendency sometimes, uh, or at least, at least it's, it's a tendency within humanity, to, uh, to think perhaps if I can do enough. In fact, a lot of the other religions of the world are kind of based on this idea. If you can do enough to where your good cancels out your bad, and your good is is greater than your bad, then perhaps you have the ability to gain your own salvation. But I would suggest that's only possible if you view salvation as a small thing. If you view salvation as like solving a Rubik's Cube or getting to Kentucky. Uh, Might take some effort. Certainly it's going to change what your week looks like, probably. Uh, but, uh, But it's something you can manage. But if you view salvation as something that is grand as something that is huge, as something that is far beyond any human ability to to attain, then the only hope you have is God's grace. And this morning, it is my privilege to talk a little bit about God's grace. Uh, Because God's grace is huge. 
God's grace is powerful, and it's big enough for you, and it's big enough for me, and it's big enough for this entire church, and it's big enough for everyone in the world who takes advantage in order to not just reach the moon, not just bring life back from the dead, but to do so into the the heavenly realm for all eternity. God is offering us an opportunity through the blood of Jesus and through his grace to have something bigger than we could ever in a million years accomplish on our own. Um, There are problems anytime you try to think that salvation can in some way be uh, based or earned or or rooted in your own works. Uh, Some of the problems are you're not good enough to do it. Uh, it's just like reaching the moon, you know. You 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 couldn't do it, you know. Uh, it just uh, just like uh, just like raising the dead, you can't do it. Uh, and, and so there are things like that 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 salvation is too big for us to be able to accomplish that, and so we would never be able to do enough works. Uh, another problem with it is, no matter how many good works you do, good works they they might be wonderful and important, but they can't erase or take away the sins that you've done. So it's like as soon as you sin, good works are no longer your hope. Uh, I, I was reading a book recently by uh, Rachel Den Hollander, and it's uh, it's it's um, it's an important book. It's it's tragic the story of it, but she was <clears throat> one of the first whistleblowers against uh, Larry Nasser, who was a, a, a very well known sports medicine doctor. Uh, worked with uh, Michigan State University, worked with the uh, Olympics gymnastics team, and he also was a pedophile, and he also was a sexual abuser, and uh, he took advantage of a lot of different girls, uh, very young age to, to older, um, but he would use his medical expertise to, to gratify himself, and, and some horrible things took place, and she came to, to recognize that, and she, she uh, was instrumental in getting him brought down, he's now serving a, a life sentence in, in prison. She talks in that story about some of the good things that he did. Um, he was very well known. He was very successful as a doctor. He did help people. And he uh, was wealthy enough. He started charity organizations. He gave a lot of money. Like He did good things. And yet, no matter how many good things you do, that doesn't take away the abuse that was suffered by a, a girl at his hands. That doesn't take away the, the it, it, as a matter of fact, it can, all it can do is kind of mask or, or in some cruel way disguise who he truly is. And that's ultimately what happens when you think good works are able to uh, eliminate or save you from your sins. What you end up doing is you don't cancel each other out. You just, you just end up living two lives. You have your sin life and you have your good works life. And, and you try to mask one with the other, but all it does is it pulls you in two different directions. Uh, and, and I think we understand that idea. I mean, if I, if I rob a bank on Friday and then Saturday... I don't rob any banks. In fact, I give a couple bucks uh, to, to the poor. Uh, on Sunday, when the police show up at my door, I can't say, wait a minute, I didn't rob any banks yesterday. In fact, I actually even did a good deed. Uh, and so uh, you can't arrest me for, for the, the, the evil I did. Even if I take every penny that I got from that bank and I give it to, uh, to, to a charity organization or I give it to some good cause, I bet I'll still get in trouble uh, because good works don't cancel out bad works. Uh, that's just not the way that, that it works, and it's not the way that it works with God. But God's grace can cancel out bad works. God's grace can cancel out sin and evil. God can make you right. God can make you pure. God can make you holy. It, no matter how hard you work, you're not raising life from the dead. But God can do that. 
And so what I want to do in the book of Ephesians is I want to look at a passage that uh, is often quoted when, uh, when people talk about salvation and they talk about grace and they talk about faith. And then I want to read up a, a, a few verses that kind of lead up to it. Because I think what you're reading there is kind of a summary statement of the way that God has saved us by grace and what that calls us to do. Uh, it's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We're going to read this passage, but then we're going to back up a little bit, and we're going to see how Paul gets here in the story or in the, in the, the letter of uh, Ephesians. So chapter 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. All right, so in this passage, we have, uh, I think, a very valuable summary statement of what God has done for us. Uh, we were saved by his grace. Uh, we were saved on, on uh, account of faith, and it is a gift of God. Uh, gifts are not things that you earn. Gifts are not things that you uh, work hard enough in order to receive. That's a wage. Uh, the wages of our life is death. But the gift of God that we have is eternal life. The gift of God is his grace. And so uh, that eliminates the ability for us to, uh, to boast, as he goes on to say in verse 9. Not as a result of work so that no man may boast. Um, if salvation were based on our works, you know what that ends up doing? It ends up creating works hierarchies in the church. And uh, if you want unity, a works-based hierarchy is never a good, helpful thing. Uh, because you have someone who's at the top, and they're looking down at all of those people who uh, haven't quite measured up to their level of righteousness. And then you have the person who's at the very bottom who comes to realize that they are the, the worst in, in the kingdom. And, and, uh, and you have this idea that some are better than others. And especially when you have grand goals of unity, like Paul does, about bringing Jews and Gentiles together. If you have a works-based righteousness, uh, where uh, however much you do earns you this much favor with God, and however little you do, you only have this much favor, and if you don't do quite enough, you have no favor, uh, then it's really hard to take two vastly different groups, like Jews and Gentiles, and put them into, into the same family of God and say, you guys are now equal say, well, how are we equal? They've done more than us, or we've done more than them. Or, and then all of a sudden, if you do more, you have something to boast about because you actually have. I'll tell you this. If I were given a week to get to the moon, and I looked at my toolbox, and I built myself a rocket ship, and I blasted off to the moon, I would boast. Uh, I would brag to everyone about how great I was. Uh, and, uh, and really, what could you say? That's pretty incredible. Um, the same type of thing is true if, if it comes to your uh, walk with God, if it comes to your salvation. And so what Paul is doing is he's trying to eliminate any idea or any concept that boasting has a place, that thinking you're greater or better than somebody else has a place. Because all of that stuff ruins the unity that God has in mind for Jews and Gentiles and for his church body as a whole. So one of the ways that Paul does that, if we back up, is he demonstrates how impossible it is to save yourself. In fact, the only possible way you can find salvation is through the might and the power and the greatness of God. And that might and that power and that greatness was first demonstrated by what God did through Jesus. 
Uh, when you look at what God did for Jesus, you see him exercising his greatness and his might and his glory and his power. And then Paul wants you to know that that same power of God, that same very powerful friend who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him new life and seated him at the heavenly places, that's what he is doing for you also. That's what he is doing in the church, making us the people that God has called us to be. So uh, look back with me at Ephesians chapter 1. So we're going to back up a little bit here. Um, In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is in the midst of explaining some of the things that he prays about for the church at Ephesus and for the the churches uh, in that area. And in chapter 1 and verse 18, here's what he says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know What is the hope of your calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And then this last one is the one I really want to camp on for a minute. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, which are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might? Notice uh, all of the descriptions used in that surpassing greatness of his power, the working of the strength of his might. Those are all things that are like, that demonstrate the unparalleled, unsurpassable might, grandeur, glory, power, strength of God. And what he's saying is all of that power and strength that God has, he's using it for you. He's using it on your behalf. The creator God who can speak a universe into existence is working to do so in your life. That same type of power that God has is at work in you. And he says... In verse 19, the end of it, it's in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. So the work that God did with his might and strength and power is that he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. And so by looking at what God has done in Jesus, you can see, oh wow, that's not... That's not anything I could do for myself. Uh, I couldn't raise myself from the dead, and I couldn't seat myself at the right hand of the heavenly place. Like, that is entirely something that God can do, and it's not anything that I could do. But that is a demonstration of how powerful and glorious and great he is. And then he says in verse 21, he did this far above. So, like, when he seated him at the heavenly places, he is far above all rulers and authorities and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Uh, and, and so, the, the forces at work in this world for evil, the, the rulers and the authorities, whether you're talking about uh, nations or whether you're talking about in the spiritual realm, which I think is, is what he's primarily focusing on right here, there are different rulers who bring about darkness in this world. And Christ was elevated above all of that and seated at the right hand of God. Okay, that's something only God can do. But what I want you to to notice is from this point on, remember his point is that the work that he demonstrated in Jesus is the same powerful work he's demonstrating in us. So Jesus was dead. He was made alive and he was raised from the dead. He was seated at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rulers and powers and authorities. And notice the end of verse 21, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He did this with respect to the age to come. Keep all of that in your mind as we start to make our way through chapter 2 now. Because what you'll see is the power of God towards Jesus is the same power of God that he demonstrates toward us. Because chapter 2 and verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So just like Jesus was dead on the cross, 
you were dead through your own sin and through your own trespasses and transgressions against God. So in that way, we, we start off where Jesus did, where, where he is demonstrating his power. Jesus was dead. We are dead. And yet, what did he do with Jesus? He made him alive. He raised him from the dead. As you keep reading, uh, look at verse 4 through 6. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which, which he loved us, even when you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. So we have been made alive with Christ. So we were dead, Christ was dead. But he was raised and made alive, we were raised and made alive. And that's what God has done. And he did it because of not our works or not our greatness or not our ability to raise ourselves or anything like that. He did it, according to verse 4, his, by his mercy and by his love. And verse 5, by his grace. These are the words that we're seeing that describe what God has done for us. And then remember how he seated Jesus at the right hand, high above all heavenly uh, or all rule and, and power and authority and dominion and all of that? Well, read the rest of verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realm. And do you know where he has brought the church? He says, we're seated there with him. Now, you might be looking around you and thinking, doesn't look like it. Um, and I think that this is an important part of what sometimes in, in eschatological studies is called the already not yet uh, aspect of, of our walk with God. Um, we are already raised up with Christ. But there's also a sense in which we in the future are going to be raised up through the literal resurrection of the dead. Uh, right now we are raised up as Christians to walk a new life. Paul, by the way, usually when he uses that language, he's, he has baptism in mind. He uses that a lot in baptismal texts, whether it's uh, Romans chapter 6 or Colossians chapter 2. That is baptism language of being buried with Christ and raised up with Christ to walk a new life. But what he's saying is the church has such a glorious place in God's uh, creative work and in God's redemptive scheme and in all that God is doing, that you are seated with Christ now. And we long for the day when that becomes an even more explicit reality, a more fulfilled vision. But the things that he has done for Christ are the things that he is doing for us. And if we've been seated there, what have we been raised above? Well, if you go back to the passage about Christ in verse 21, when he is seated at the right hand, then he is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. All right? If you look at chapter 2 in verse 2, when we were dead, you know what we were walking? You know how we walked? He says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, which is the word rule, uh, of the power, which is the same word, uh, it's the word authority that he uses in that earlier, of the air, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He uses a lot of the same words to describe what Christ was lifted above to describe how we once walked. We once walked according to the prince of the powers of the darkness and the dominion of this world, but now we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And you remember how in chapter 1 and verse 21, he says this happened not only in this age, but also in the age to come. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 7, he says, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing richness of his grace in kindness toward us who believe. 
If you just look at some of the descriptions that are used for what God did of Christ, he's showing in like this whole chapter how that not only happened with Christ, that's what's happening with us. That is what God's great power is doing towards us. Now, the question that I think we could ask ourselves, if we want to understand how we started off this lesson, talking about there are some things you can do yourself and there's some things you just can't. Can you make yourself alive from the dead? Can you seat yourself in the heavenly places with Christ? Can you uh, uh, do so in such a way that you elevate yourself above all rule and power and authority here on this earth? No. But through your allegiance to Jesus, he can take you and lift you up beyond that. He can give you the salvation that you otherwise on your own never in a million years could receive. Uh, Salvation is such a big thing that there's no possible way you could do it on your own. You can only have hope in what God has done for you. And I'm thankful that God is not only, chapter 1 and verse 19, has surpassing greatness and power, which he works by the strength of his might, but God is also, chapter 2 and verse 4, a God of mercy and great love with which he loved us, and a graceful God. In chapter 2 and verse 7, a kind God. Like, he's not only powerful, but that powerful God is a merciful, kind, loving, gracious God. And he looks at you, and he loves you. So when you find out you have to get to the moon by Sunday, he says, no problem. When you find out you have to become alive from the dead, he says, I got it. Give your allegiance to me, and I'll take you there. I'll bring you where you need to go. If God brings me to the moon, I ain't boasting about it. Uh, I can't, you know, if I build my own rocket ship, then maybe I can boast. But if God does the work... All I can do is live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving and appreciation for all that he has done for me. If God saves me, I cannot boast about that. I can't boast about what somebody else has done. Uh, I, I can be thankful for what they have done. And I can now try to live into the life that they want me to live. Which is why Paul, right after discussing what God has done for us, he moves on in chapter 2 and verse 10 to say, Look, you have been, by grace, you've been saved. It's not of yourself. It's not your own doing. You couldn't do it. It is a gift of God. It's not of works because there's no place for boasting in God's kingdom. But you are his work. You know, It's not your works. It's God's work. And you are his workmanship. You are his work of art. You are his new creation. And you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so one of the things that I think is really important for us to always remember is that when God saved us, we had done not a single good work for him. Like we, I mean, take a person who has spent their life in rebellion against God, and then they hear the gospel, and they, they commit to Jesus, their sins are washed away, and all of that happens. How much have they, like th- that day that they're standing there, how much have they done for God? They've done virtually nothing. They've been made alive. They've received from God. But they, what have they done? Have they, have they memorized the Bible and then taught it to people and converted thousands? No, that's a good work they haven't done. Uh, have they, in the name of Jesus, uh, uh, fed the hungry? No, they, ha- they haven't done anything in the name of Jesus. It's like before you've done a single work, God saves you. And then he does so in order to free you up so that now you can do the works of God. The works that you were created for. The works that he prepared beforehand for you to walk in. One of the things that is uh, 
you know, fascinating about this chapter is it describes a total and complete transformation. You look at the person at the beginning of chapter 2 and, and, and right here in chapter 2, and you see someone who is dead who is now alive. You see someone who was ruled by the powers of this world who is now seated at the heavenly places. You see someone who, chapter 2 and verse 2, who walked according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air and according to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's how you walked. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 10, we see that we are now walking in good works. And there's plenty of them. God prepared them beforehand so that as you leave this building and you look out, you can see opportunity for good work. And when you see those opportunities, don't just think of them as random happenstance. Think of them as this is an opportunity that God has prepared for me right now to be engaged in. And that's what he created me for in Christ. You know, when we talk about creation, there's the old creation where God created Adam. Uh, There's the new creation to which we are longing. But there's also the new creation that we're longing for that we're now supposed to be living into. And when you're raised up out of baptism and you, you become that new person, you are a new creation. Old things have passed, all things are new, and this is a new creation text, which is saying God has now created you in Christ. You're a new person in Christ, and he has freed you from the shackles and the, 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 the chains of sin that held you back and the corruption of a previous way of life to now be who God wants you to be and to live the way God wants you to live and to fulfill the works that God has been preparing beforehand for you to walk in and live in. So what God's grace does is it frees us from the sin that holds us back so that we can then live the life that God wants us to live. And he wants us to live a life of new work and new creation of good deeds. Now, again, God doesn't calculate up our deeds at the end of time to determine whether or not we're saved. We're saved at the beginning. (laughs) We're saved before we've done the good deeds. But the good deeds are what he created us for. You are created in Christ to change the world for Jesus. And one way you do that, as you keep reading is through the incredible unity that God wants to demonstrate to the world. If, if you were saved based on your own works, when, when you accomplish something great, you would then receive the glory for that. But if you were saved by God's grace, one of the benefits of this is if you look at chapter 2 and verse 7, he says, "...so that in the ages to come God might show the surpassing riches of his grace." in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The surpassing greatness that's demonstrated through God's grace is not ours. It's his. And what that then does is it opens up the door for ages to come for other people to enter into God's grace as well. And as that happens, a world that is fractured and divided can have peace, not based on what they're able to accomplish on their own, but based on the grace of God. That's, that's where this conversation moves towards the end of chapter 2. He broke down that which divides us, and he has become our peace. And he has reconciled us into one body, making one new man. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, or whether what, what, whatever category you wanted to define yourself in, you have been brought one with one another by God's grace. Not because you were so wonderful, but because God is so wonderful. And in that, you can work together as a unified front to show his good work to the world around us so that his grace will be honored rather than we ourselves, so that people will see his goodness even rather than our own. And that, I think, is what Ephesians is trying to demonstrate by how God's grace 
accomplish the impossible for us. We can have what we otherwise never could because of his grace. And if we live in that grace, we can unify people who otherwise would never be unified into one body. And when people see the good works of the church and the unity of the church, they can bask in the glory and they can even give thanks to God and they can even enter into his kindness and grace, which is available for them also. And that happens not only now, but tomorrow and next year and in the ages to come on and on throughout history. God's work is changing the world in that way. He did it in Jesus initially, and he continues to do it for the church and for each one of us. And that's something that I, you know, when you think about the things in your life that you are grateful for, um, there just shouldn't be a thing higher than God's grace. Um, God's grace is not a... um, permission to sin or something like that, it actually ends up becoming your strongest motivation not to. It becomes your strongest motivation to live a life of thanksgiving and an honor of the God who loved you and saved you. And that is how you show his goodness to the world around you. That's, that's what those good works are for, to reflect on God's greatness in the world. And if we can help anyone here this morning accept the grace of God, Name Jesus as the Lord of your life. Give allegiance to him. Have your sins washed away in baptism so that your death becomes new life as you are raised up. We pray that you would let that be known. Um, I also want to challenge anyone here. If you have received the grace of God, know that you were created for a purpose. Keep your eyes open as you leave this place, as you look around you for the good works that God has prepared beforehand that you can now walk in them. See God-given opportunity for good and try to take advantage of it. It's what you're here for. It's why God created you in Christ. You know, Adam was created with a purpose. He was supposed to take care of the garden. He was supposed to, to, to do what God had. Well, you're created with a purpose. Keep your eyes open and tend to God's wonderful garden around us. There's opportunity everywhere to serve. Take advantage of it. Uh, If you want to talk to one of our elders, they will be available in the back also, whether you need prayers or you'd like to become a Christian. But God's grace is available, and it's for you. Please come while we stand and as we sing.